Dear Father, what a beautiful time to be in your house, Father, amongst those who know you. You you indwell our body, Father. The temple is the body, but we bring you uh, into our lives through through the practices of our faith, Father. For you're never away from us, but uh, we can get away from you. And we can forget you, and we can set aside following you and concerning ourselves with you. So it's a good thing, Father, that we would take one day of the week at least and gather under a roof and call it a church and be mindful of you. I know you would prefer, Father, that we would think about you at every moment and that we would beware of your presence in our our lives at every turn. And we long to do that, Father. We desire that we would have that kind of mind. That we pray, Father, you bring us there in due time. But in the meantime, Father... We put special significance on one day of the week and we put a special emphasis on gathering in this place because we love each other. We love the spirit in us, Father, who who makes us one. And we love your word and we're just concerned, Father, for the world that doesn't know you and we want to be better at representing you and of testifying to you, of answering questions that people have so that when we show them there there are answers, that there is truth to be known, that that will call in their hearts, that will call them to to want to know you better. And so, Father, that's how we want this time to go this morning. Preach through the mouth of a man, Father. Do it in your own power by the work of the Spirit. Don't let it be my words, Father. Let it be yours. Let the truth be self-evident so that we would not be judged on the basis of how skilled I am, Father, but it would be seen and known to be true because you wrote it and because you provided it to us. And as we concern ourselves with it, Father, Give us an honesty within ourselves to know whether we are living up to it or not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after a couple week break, I want to bring us back into the story of Ruth. Not the first story, as I call it, but the second story. And that is the story within the story of Ruth. Within this book, we read not only of a family in Israel in the time of Judges, but also a story of the nation of Israel and that nation's husband, spiritually speaking, Jehovah. So this second story is a poignant love story, much like the first one. In the case of the first story, you have two widows seeking security, seeking a provider, having been widowed. But in that story, you have a picture of another one, of another story, that of God's love for his chosen people and how God deals with Israel and ultimately with the church as well. Each week, we're studying one of these two stories. Last time we taught, I taught the second half of chapter one, looking at the primary story, that is of Naomi and Ruth and Orpah and so on. This time, we're going to look at that same passage from the second side, from that of Israel and the Lord and a new character today, the church. I want to reread those verses, part of them anyway, so that we can remember what we looked at. We'll start in verse seven again in chapter one and just read down through most of the end of the chapter. We read in verse 7 that Naomi, she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? 
Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you from me or parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. I'm going to pause there. The next verse we'll cover is part of chapter 2. Today we're going to examine the prophetic story that's told by these events. Now, Naomi, as you just heard, lives in a day of sinfulness in the time of Judges. She has endured God's judgment while she's been outside the land. She's been in a time of drought and famine, and that's what caused her family to flee out of the land in the first place, into the land of their enemies, the Moabites. Those details, as you learned last time, picture the wife of Jehovah, that is Israel, judged by God for disobedience by scattering Israel into the land of their enemies, which took place after A.D. 70 and in earlier days as well. That scattering had the effect over time of reducing the number who are a part of Israel, bringing them misery, bringing them weakness. And as they remained outside their land for the better part of two millennia, the people of Israel have pined away until they were only a remnant, reduced greatly in number, from the prior days when they lived in peace and security in the land. That's the history of Israel for the last 2,000 years or so, which is a parallel to the scene that we see here in Ruth with Elimelech's family being only a fraction of its original size as they begin to return from the nations into their land. So we see in Naomi's story at the end of this chapter, the beginning of that change. We said earlier that they had been in the land of their enemies for about 10 years, and when we looked at that last time, we noted that the terms there of about 10 years is more than just an approximation of time. It's symbolically saying something about the nature of the events. Nine being the number of judgment, 10 being the number of testimony. They are about 10. That is to say they're between 9 and 10. They're ending judgment, and they're preparing to enter into a time of testimony. It's communicating God's purpose. That is to say, God had put Israel, or in this case Naomi's family, outside the land for a period of judgment as a response to the sin of the time. But it wasn't to their destruction. It would ultimately result in Israel being granted opportunity back in their land and it would become a testimony to God's faithfulness that the nation would be restored at some point. And all of this is being pictured in Elimelech's family. All the details parallel with his family. Like Naomi, God promised Israel that he would regather survivors in a future day. And for the past 60 years of history, you and I have been privileged to watch that regathering taking place in the land of Israel today. 
In a sense, you could say you and I are living right now in chapter 1 of Ruth. We're watching the family of Israel, the forsaken wife of Jehovah, Scripture calls her, coming back into her land, seeking rest after a period of judgment spent outside the land. Now, back in that first story, we see Naomi returning to her land, a very different woman than the one who left originally with her husband Elimelech. First of all, she's a widow. Secondly, she has no sons. And in the days of this story and in the culture of the East, the plight of a woman under her circumstances was one of desperation, which we said last time. She would not be able to own property. She generally could not earn a living. She couldn't testify in court. These are all rules that applied to women in that day. And most importantly, the family name would only be carried forward by male heirs. So a woman without a husband or a son was like an orphan in that time. All land ownership rights in Israel would have naturally transferred through male heirs. So she is at the risk of losing her inheritance, losing her rights in the land. So she is a candidate for starvation in the way that this culture often works. So the family of this woman, Naomi, is literally at the end of the line. They're at the end financially. They're at the end socially. They're at the end emotionally. Her husband is gone. Both her sons are gone. So she has no hope to bring herself out of this hopelessness. So you can appreciate the plight of this woman in the way she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Another example of this is found in Luke. In chapter 7 of Luke, Jesus comes across a woman who is under very similar circumstances. And in chapter 7, verse 11, we read this. Soon afterward, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. And as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. He is the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. This is a miracle proving his deity, but why did he pick this moment and that circumstance to raise somebody from the dead? It's because his compassion for this widow was much more than just a matter of her losing a son. It was the bleak financial future for her. She was a widow already, and now without a son, she had nothing. Which helps us understand why Naomi's decision to return to her land is happening now. She's driven primarily by a desire for rest, for security, for posterity, for rescue, something to take the burdens of widowhood off her shoulders and bring her back to a place of fullness. So then knowing Naomi's situation, what does that teach us about the second story, about Israel and about Jehovah? Well, amazingly, throughout the thousands of years that the people of Israel have been scattered across the globe, First, they have never ceased to maintain their identity. In the same way that Naomi has not become a Moabite as a source of rescue from her circumstances, neither has the nation of Israel ever disappeared from the planet. And there is no parallel in all anthropology. This does not happen. Israel remained distinct as a nation, though they had no country of their own and they were always living in someone else's land. This sort of thing, friends, just does not happen. Anthropologists cannot explain this in the case of Israel. A group of refugees may remain distinct while living in another land for a few generations, right? They may even maintain their language and some of their traditions for hundreds of years while they live in another land. That's not necessarily surprising. 
You can see this trend in cultural concentrations like Chinatown or Little Italy, these places that spring up inside larger cities to preserve the culture of some immigrant population. But friends, those groups are only able to survive in that way and maintain their identities because their homelands still exist. And therefore, they still provide a supply of new immigrants on a regular basis that go into those conclaves. If Italy didn't exist or China disappeared, Chinatowns and Little Italy's would eventually disappear too. But Israel never had that. Israel didn't have a homeland. They didn't have a natural supply of new immigrants. They had been scattered in AD 70 and had no single source. And yet their identities have never been lost. Immigrants into larger societies always meld. They always assimilate into the larger culture. But Israel has never done this. They have no homeland for 2,000 years, and yet they remain distinct wherever they live. And that, friends, is a testimony to God preserving Israel as he has promised to do. And it goes even a step further in the case of Israel, because they weren't just allowed to come in and join cultures. They found themselves routinely persecuted, systematically murdered for being Jews. And yet, even then, their identity survived. When all the pressure of the culture was to meld and to disappear, they persisted against all odds. God was keeping his promise to Israel to preserve them as a distinct people among their enemies. Ironically, that distinction was the very source, often, of their misery. But they maintained it ever since A.D. 70. And that strong identity, wherever they live, has caused them to be the target of persecution, but it also serves as a testimony that God is not done with his people. It would have been so much easier for Israel to just blend in, become part of the culture, and get along with everyone. But God didn't allow that to happen either. This is the life of Israel in her widowhood, as promised in Scripture. Living in the land of her enemies, God said, living as a foreigner, holding no true security, no true rest, and as a result, ultimately longing for their home. That's been the, the fate of Israel for 2,000 years, give or take. No matter how comfortable the Jewish people might have become living among other nations, that comfort was always temporary because eventually persecution reemerged. Eventually they lost their place of rest or security, like a widow in the lack of an inheritance, like someone like Naomi, who knew that she could find no rest in Moab. She had to return to Israel to her homeland. In 1948, everything changed for Israel. Jews the world over awoke on May 14, 1948, to the reality of a Jewish state on the earth again for the first time since A.D. 70. And immediately millions of Jews began making plans to return to that nation. They could finally rest from their enemies, or so they thought, and they could be at peace in their homeland, or so they dreamed. But they didn't return as the same people who left. They were reduced in number. They came in bitter from all the past persecutions, from all the loss, from all the suffering that had taken its toll over many years, the most recent of which, of course, had been World War II, which is what gave rise to the nation in the first place. 1948 was a direct result of some of the diplomacy that followed the war. They were all grieved and acting very much like Mara, as she calls herself. Reduced, pitiful, weak, dependent, but at least going home. She says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She acknowledges it is the Lord moving her both out and back. And at the same time, it is the Lord depriving her, at least to a degree. Like a widow, she returns 
learning that there was an opportunity in Israel, glad to come back, but grieved and reduced in number. But more importantly for today, in our story, Naomi's not going back alone. In tow, originally, were the two Gentile daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And as we saw last time, Orpah, being an unbeliever, not believing in Jehovah, not believing in the God of Israel, but preferring the gods of the Moabites, she returns. She wouldn't make the trip. But the other Gentile, Ruth, attaches herself to Naomi. And as we saw last week, last time I taught, the attachment is a covenant. She makes a covenant with Naomi. Consider what Ruth's future held when she makes this covenant. As she thinks of going into Israel, what was in store for Ruth? Well, like Naomi, she's a widow. So she's looking for a security and a husband. But unlike Naomi, she's young enough to expect someone to take an interest in her and an opportunity to marry, to come along. But she's leaving her native land where she would have been free to marry anyone, presumably. And she's going to a foreign nation where the laws of that nation prohibit men from marrying her. She's literally not allowed to be married to anybody because the laws of Israel did not allow Jewish men to marry a Moabite. So Ruth's decision to accompany Naomi is crazy in light of her desire to be remarried. And as we learned last time, it was Naomi's God who had revealed himself to Ruth, which then caused to stir up a love for him in her heart to the degree that she was willing to attach herself to Naomi and to be part of that nation and that nation's God at the expense of a husband, if that were the case. That's quite a commitment. This attachment of Ruth, a Gentile to Naomi, a Jewish woman. That itself also pictures something that takes place in the church and with Israel. God knew that Israel, his wife, as he calls her, would depart from him and chase after other gods. We saw scripture in previous weeks in which he said that would happen. And so he forewarned Israel in the law that they would know a time of severe judgment for their unfaithfulness. But God also said he would turn this time of judgment into an opportunity for good for other nations. He would use Israel's judgment to extend grace to another group of people. We read it in Deuteronomy, just two verses. Deuteronomy 32, 20 and 21, he writes this through Moses. I will hide my face from them, meaning Israel. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not my people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. The Lord said to Israel, you're going to provoke me with your idol worship, so I'm going to turn around and provoke you with a new relationship that I'm going to establish with a different people, not you, but with someone else. That new relationship will have the effect of provoking, so to speak, the Jewish nation into a form of jealousy for what they lacked. So who is this foolish nation that the Lord has attached himself to in order to provoke Israel in their unfaithfulness? Well, look around. You're it. I'm it. The Hebrew word for nation in Deuteronomy is goy. And you may know that's the word for Gentile in, in Hebrew. So it's the Gentiles collectively which are this foolish nation that Israel is going to be made jealous by. So God said through Moses that he's going to establish a covenant relationship with Gentiles following a period of Jewish rebellion. He would use that relationship to create in Israel a longing to know him again, to have what they do not have. Jealousy for the relationship that he gives to the Gentiles. 
And God set out to create this opportunity among a group who would not have otherwise ever have known him. Isaiah 65 verse 1, he says this, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Notice the actor. Notice who's doing the action here. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. A classic passage of Scripture to emphasize God's sovereignty in the way men and women are called into the relationship. That's why Paul can say in Romans 3, there is no one who seeks for God, no, not one. The fundamental principle of Scripture is that apart from God revealing Himself to us, we would never have known Him, we never would have even looked for Him. But God in His grace and His mercy finds us. And God said to Israel, because you refuse to obey and and worship me, I will go find another people for myself. Ruth, in the story of Ruth, represents a Gentile. She is Gentile. She represents Gentiles who come to know God because God comes seeking for them. And how did that happen in the case of Ruth? Well, Ruth, from what we know, was a Moabite woman living in Moab with no concept of Jehovah, no knowledge of him in any meaningful way, no interest in Israel or their gods. She's minding her own business in Moab. And what does God do? He sends a family to them, a family of men that obviously became her husband, and then from there a relationship ensued. And at the end of it all, even though she no longer even has the husband that she started with, what's left is the spiritual relationship that God wanted her to have through Naomi, through the influence of that family. God says in Isaiah 55, verse 5 and 6, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel. For He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. In that passage, Isaiah says, God will call a nation that the Jews do not know. And then he adds that this nation will run to Israel in order to have that relationship. That's the testimony of Scripture concerning you and I. In a sense, we have run to Israel in order to know Israel's God, just as Ruth has attached herself to Naomi so that she can know Israel's God. And in the same way that she attaches herself to Naomi, you may not have realized this, perhaps, but you and I, the Gentiles, have become attached to Israel in order to have access to Israel's God. How is that true? Well, you heard and believed in a gospel which centers on a Jewish Messiah. A man sent to Israel as a result of promises given to Israel by the God of Israel. Israel rejected that Messiah when he came as a part of God's plan, as God said it would happen. And now, in the interim, while we wait for Israel to eventually receive the Messiah, he has made opportunity available for the rest of us in an effort to provoke Israel's jealousy. So, you and I have been attached spiritually to Israel by way of the covenants God extended to them. Paul says this in Romans 11. Let me just read you Romans 11, 11 and 12. Paul says, I say then, they, meaning Israel, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, that is their sin against God, he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And then he says in verse 12, Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for Gentiles, well, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul explains that God has set the Jewish nation aside just for a time in order to make the gospel available to you and I instead. 
And he says, if he was willing to set his own people aside so that you and I could have the glory of salvation, well then, how much more glory will it be when in the future, God brings Israel to the fulfillment of what he promised them? And that's the expectation we have. That's the future we're looking for. If God can produce so much good from Israel's judgment, how much more good will he produce from their restoration? And then Paul explains later in that chapter of Romans how the church is attached to Israel as a function of our relationship to God. He says this in Romans eleven seventeen: If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, well, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Of course, he's using an analogy of an olive tree to represent two nations of people, Jews and Gentiles. And he says the tree of Israel was the origin of everything, the root. It's where the covenants came from. It's where God made promises. It's where the word of God came from. It's where the Messiah came from. Everything you can point to that attaches you to God, to salvation, to Christ, it all passes through Israel to get there. Israel's the root. He says now that tree was pruned, so to speak, branches cut off and the like for disobedience as a nation. And in the meantime, God is grafting in some foreign group of branches, you and I, into that root for a time. And we receive our nourishment, spiritually speaking, from Israel, from what God gave them, in other words. We owe our very spiritual life to the Jewish people in that sense, not individually to a person, but to the entity. But in the long term, God will eventually restore Israel as he has promised. We, meanwhile, benefit. And Ruth... Going back to the first story, is a perfect picture of this. Ruth, in faith and love, recognized that this Jewish woman was her lifeline to a God that she has now come to know. In a sense, she's grafted into Naomi, and she's receiving her spiritual nourishment through Naomi, in the sense that it's through Naomi that she's come to know these things. And, friends, we're Ruth, in that sense. We're spiritually attached to Israel by our faith. As Paul says... In Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, speaking of Jew and Gentile, both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul says this, that the church and Israel are united by faith in a common God. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying that the church and Israel are the same entity, or, for that matter, that the church replaces Israel in any sense. That's often taught, but it's not accurate to Scripture. Paul clearly teaches here and elsewhere that Israel remains distinct from the church, though we are one in our union with the same God, with Christ. Even as believing Jews are welcomed into the body of Christ today, nevertheless, the nation of Israel still remains on the earth today. One of the best pieces of evidence I could offer you, by the way, for the distinction between Israel and the church, is the symbology in the story of Ruth itself. When Ruth comes to know and follow Naomi's God, do Ruth and Naomi merge into one single person in the story? Well, clearly not. 
Or for that matter, does Ruth replace Naomi in the story, pushing her out of the way, so to speak? No. The two remain distinct, but they remain united, spiritually, by faith and love for the same God. And I might add, in the course of this story, they both have two very different destinies in the story, though related, as does the church in Israel. For the Jew, the idea that the Gentiles share in the promises God gave to them, that poses a very difficult challenge for Jews, and especially did in the early church. You may remember, Jews prior to Christ long rejected the possibility that a Gentile ever had a share in the blessings of the kingdom. They were dogs, they were the lost, they were outside God's favor. There was never a possibility. You may remember that one moment where Jesus is teaching and a woman comes up to him, a Canaanite woman, and asks that she would have a healing, and Jesus says something to the effect of, it's not good that I should hand the things of God to dogs. He says that to test to find out what her true heart is. She responds with a a statement of faith. She says, even the dogs get the scraps that fall off the table. Her point was, I fully recognize you are the Jewish Messiah and that I am a Gentile. I fully recognize you were sent by God in fulfillment of promises made to the Jewish people, not made to me. But I also know from Scripture that it will be God's intention to bless all nations through those promises, not simply one nation. And I'm here to claim that promise. And Jesus said, you have a lot of faith, and he healed her. That's the relationship between the church and Israel, as you see reflected here. Gentiles attached to Jews, knowing that our source is through them. And they struggle with the concept that there was a plan all along for this. God has to step in and set them right. You may remember early in the church, some of the Jewish apostles struggled with the very concept that the gospel that they had been entrusted with was intended for Gentiles. At one point, the apostles gathered to decide as a group whether God truly intended to allow Gentiles to enter into the church. And in Acts 15, you read this, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us also. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. It's so funny for us now, it's so hard to actually consider now as we sit here today in the 21st century, that there was a time in the early church when the very apostles themselves were struggling with the idea that the church would have Gentiles in it. And yet, the church is primarily Gentile. That's how hard it is for Naomi to accept the idea that Ruth is attaching herself. Did you catch that in the story? Did you notice that? As Naomi and Ruth are discussing, and Ruth says, I'll attach myself and I'll help you. Why is Naomi so resistant for a Jew to think that there's a place at all for a Gentile in the plan of God and in the blessings of God was a struggle? You notice there at the very end, verse 22, it says, Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I said at the beginning of today we would cover this as part of next time in chapter 2, and we will. What you need to know leaving the chapter today is that the events of their entry back into the land come with a backdrop of the barley harvest, a harvest time. A time of harvest sets up the events of chapters 2 through 4. When we go to looking at the second story of Ruth, that is the story of Israel and the church and God, We'll move out of this period of regathering, which I just said is our current day. Today we basically live in chapter 1 of Ruth, prophetically speaking. 
When we enter into chapter 2 and beyond, we enter into a time of harvest. And if you are a student of Scripture, particularly the New Testament parables that Jesus teaches, you may be hearing in the back of your head a little ring going off thinking, harvest. Harvest is often used as a picture in Scripture of something, isn't it? The harvest time, the reaping of something, the separating of the wheat from the tares and the like. And if you're thinking that, you should be. Because it sets us into a certain time frame prophetically as we move into chapters 2 and beyond. That of a time in which harvest will take place and what will come of the two entities in the time of the harvest. That's where we're headed in this story. That's why I said that Ruth is a story of eschatology prophetically. Even as it tells the beautiful story of a woman being redeemed from her widowhood. We'll come back to that next week. Let's go to prayer. We'll have a time of corporate prayer as I finish and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our day of of doctrine and and the depths of your word. I know sometimes, Father, a Sunday is a time of exhortation or encouragement, or sometimes it's uh, a time in which we're reflecting on our individual lives. And then sometimes, Father, we simply sit at your feet and we learn. Sometimes, Father, it's, it's best that we just pay attention to where you're going and to the way you've worked in the past and the plans you have for the future, for it does... So good for our souls, Father, to understand you're in control and that there's a huge plan going on around us. And yet, in your love, you decided to make us a part of it. That we didn't seek you, that you sought us. And that in the depths of our worst days, when we're living in our flesh, when the world is persecuting us, when things aren't going our way, we can rest, Father, knowing that by faith alone we have already been saved. And that by your mercy, by your providence, by your wisdom, you've put us on a path that's leading somewhere. And we don't have to know the way. We just have to trust you. And if you can take Ruth and Naomi and move their lives thousands of years ago in ways that reflect perfectly your plan for the ages, well then, Father, truly, what else could you not do? I mean, is there any reason, Father, for us to worry? Is your hand incapable of meeting our needs or of solving our concerns. No, Father, we know they, that everything lies in your control. Just help us to remember that as we may face struggles and as we may go through challenges, Father. We know that you're in control. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that by your mercy you have brought us into promises you gave to other people and that you've taken your own people and set them aside for a time because you loved us. Let us love them in return, Father, as we love the, the mission you've given us to reach the world. And let us do that diligently as we wait for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.